Welcome to Langstaff Online. My name is Michael De Silva, and I am your host for episode eight. In this episode, we are going to be listening to Stephen Grant's fourth session from the Christian Fellowship Weekend entitled Love One Another. This was the final session of the weekend series. again um, when you're all giving your feedback um, just don't bother sending anything to me um, feedback's good but too much feedback sometimes can be a bit overwhelming um, so yeah get your feedback in for the weekend and uh, let the organizers know how the weekend has been for you so John chapter 13 a verse or two and then into first Corinthians chapter 13 is our text so John chapter 13 um, here earlier on um, I spoke at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the first three verses, and I'm going to pick up from verse 4 onwards um, in this session. So, John chapter 13, we have this command of the Lord Jesus, and verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one to another then over to first corinthians chapter 13 please and just we'll set the context of this by reading verse 31 of chapter 12 but covet earnestly the best gifts and yet show i unto you a more excellent way though i speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity and become as sounding brass or a tinkling symbol. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Yeah, that's our text. And so the Lord Jesus, he in his ministry to his disciples, he gave them this instruction to love one another. And he said it was a new commandment. And we were thinking earlier, and by way of introduction, some of this will be repetitive uh, to those who were here earlier, but the Lord Jesus, when he says, a new commandment I give unto you, he was not giving them something new in its totality because in the Old Testament, God expected his people to love one another. But the standard of love had never been seen on earth as it was in the Lord Jesus. He had demonstrated that by washing the disciples' feet, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them to the end. And this new standard, this demonstration of agape divine love was unknown. And therefore, the Lord Jesus says, a new commandment I give unto you that ye love one another. When you come over now into uh, chapter 13, Paul is writing to the Corinthians and the Corinthian church 
was a deeply divided church. The divisions are dealt with at the beginning of the epistle when the apostle speaks about these um, sections of the church which were at war with each other. And what they'd done was they had appointed a leader, and the leader knew nothing about it, but they appointed the leader anyway, and they gathered under a name, and they were in conflict one with the other. So I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ, and so forth. So there was deep divisions in the assembly at Corinth. Paul is now speaking in this section of his letter about spiritual gifts, and it was one of the defining characteristics of that assembly that the gifts were being used in an inappropriate way. So people were showing off, people were grandstanding, people were um, elevating themselves as a result of the exercise of their spiritual gift. Paul wants to teach them about that and does it in chapter 12, 13, and 14. So in chapter 12, you read about the giving of the gift. In chapter 14, you read about the use of the gift. And in chapter 13, you read about the necessary component of love for the gift to be fruitful. And so I use the analogy of an engine. You know, you have all the component parts of the engine, and you can start the engine up, and you can have the manual as to how the engine should be working. But if there's no oil in the engine, it's going to seize, and you won't go anywhere. And that's very much like a local assembly. If there is no love in an assembly, there can be all the spiritual gift, and we can know how that spiritual gift should function, but without love, the assembly will cease, and there'll be no fruit for God. That's the broad context of what we're talking about here. So he comes to this section in chapter 13, and he's going to teach us about love. He's going to give us a definition of it. In fact, that's what we're going to speak about just now. But he leads into it, and this is a bit repetitive, but he leads into it by saying that this is the more excellent way. In verse 31 of chapter 12, he has said, covet earnestly the best gifts. And we did a wee bit of grammar earlier to indicate that this is most likely the indicative, which means that it is a statement of fact and not a command. And the idea is that they were coveting what they considered to be the best gifts. And so they were elevating people with certain spiritual gifts above others, and they were seeking to be that person themselves. And the speaking in tongues, the external dramatic gifts were the ones that they valued. The, Lord, the, the Apostle Paul says, I want to show you a more excellent way, a better way. Chapter 13 is the better way defined, and it's the way of love. So in chapter 14 and verse 1, after that parenthesis of chapter 13, he then says, follow after charity or love. So you can really read from verse 31 of chapter 12, skip chapter 13, go into chapter 14, and you have a flow of thought. But if you skip chapter 13, you don't know what to follow. For it says, follow after charity, and you don't know what it is. So chapter 13 is essential so that we know what it is we to follow. That's the structure of the section. Now, we saw, just to um, summarize the first three verses, we saw that, and I'm going to summarize it in a sentence, so you all had to endure 45 minutes earlier, but I'll give it to you in a sentence. Here is the summary of what he said. So, in verses 1 to 3, the absence of love renders any behavior unchristian. The absence of love 
renders any behavior, any conduct, anything unchristian. It is not Christian. You can tag it as Christian, label it, you can describe it, you can kid yourself on that this is a Christian thing, but it's not because it is not of Christ if it is not characterized by love. That's what the first three verses teach us. So, for example, you have language without love, you have knowledge without love, you have all of these things without love, you have faith without love, you have charity, giving without love. All of it is not Christian because there is no love. So then, that begs the question, what is love? I was going to burst into song, what's love got to do with it? That'd, that'd be a shocker. I would get sacked as well. So, what is love? I'm glad my kids aren't here. We're not left to kind of flounder around wondering what love is, because love is defined here. And love is not an abstract, nor is it a subjective definition. Love is objectively described here in this section. So, in the English, we have a description that uses 15 adjectives. So, there are adjectives used to describe love, but in the original language of the Bible, they're not adjectives. They're verbs, which you might say, what, what is the significance of that? The significance of that is that the description of love is framed, and I could ask these young kids down here what is a verb, and back to school. I remember being at school and being taught that a verb is a doing word. And so, when you think about the description of love, it is framed in words that speak about action. They are action words. They are doing words. So, love is described in terms of action, not words. That's very important. So, it is actually about doing things, not saying things. Now, it doesn't remove language in its totality, but it does remove hypocrisy. So then, let us pick this apart, and we're going to spend some time thinking about the words that are used here and what love actually means. First of all, and I'm reading from the authorized version, obviously, you'll have picked that up, and so, obviously, other uh, versions will, in, um, will interpret or whatever translate it differently, but it says this in verse number four, charity suffereth long, long suffering, patience, whatever word you choose to use. What is this? Now, it's a commonly used word in the New Testament, and it would speak about patience with people as opposed to patience with circumstance. So, love is characterized by the ability to be patient with people. So, if I am going to love someone, then I need to be patient with them. Now, that means in practical terms that it is the ability or the function of being wronged with the ability to retaliate but choosing not to do so. Suffers long. Now, this was countercultural, particularly to people in Corinth within that Greek culture. 
because they would follow teachings such as Aristotle and so forth, and the, the prevailing philosophy within Greek and Roman culture actually was this. For Aristotle said that the great Greek, try saying that fast, the great Greek virtue is the refusal to tolerate any insult or injury and a readiness to strike back. That was seen as a virtue, one of the great virtues of the Greeks. But of course, the Lord Jesus, he manifested the exact opposite. He was patient because God is patient. Romans chapter 2 verse 4, despises thou the riches of the goodness and forbearance, here it is, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. God is long-suffering. 2 Peter 3 verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see this long-suffering in areas of forgiveness. For example, Matthew 18, verse 21 to verse 22, when Peter asked the question, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? I think Peter then, because, you know, the, the Jewish heritage was that um, you were four strikes and then out. Uh, and they did the classic thing where they took a verse out of context and then they make it a pretext and then it became a law and, and so on. Uh, and what they did was for, for three transgressions or four, for three transgressions or four, for three transgressions or four, the prophet would say God would act. So, you know, for three transgressions or four, that was it. And they took that out of context and they said, well, if God applies that standard to the nations of Edom and so on, then we will apply it to our relationships. After all, it's a principle in Scripture, which is often a misunderstood expression. It's a principle of Scripture, therefore it must be applicable here. So we will give someone three goes, maybe four, then you're done. So Peter, I think, thinking that that won't do, that the Lord is gracious and compassionate, so he goes big. And he climbs the ladder of forgiveness to the heady heights of seven. You and I can't get past one, if we're honest. Like, one's a big number. One's a big number. We think we've climbed Everest when we hit one. We feel all self-righteous and pleased with ourselves, and we're thanking the Lord for the grace He gave us to do it. And we managed to forgive. One's a big number. And we're all smirking because we know that one's difficult. Two. Three. Now you're in the realm of the ridiculous. Four. Seven. I think Peter thinks he's in safe ground. Of course, the Lord just blows him away. Seventy times seven, Peter. Don't put a number on it. That's the idea. It's not that you get to, you know, 423 and you're counting them off. It's just that it's not a number so that you should not put a number on it. That's another subject, but the point is just this, that the expectation of Christ was just in a different level in relation to the subject of forgiveness. 
That's a whole other subject, forgiveness. But you see, inherent in that is the principle of long-suffering. Because love is long-suffering. But it's not just long-suffering, it's kind. So long-suffering often endures without response. We see that with the Savior in His suffering. But kindness would be a parallel. And so, if long-suffering receives, kindness often gives. So, long-suffering is saying, I will take it from my enemy. And kindness is saying, I will give to my enemy. And the one works with the other. Now, what is interesting is this, that that word kind, the root word for the word translated kind is the word useful. Useful. So, I am going to do things for an individual, and this is me loving them, and they're going to be useful. How many of you waking up in Christmas morning to a pile of presents that will be We've got an expression for it back home in Scotland, but basically folk have got like a cupboard to shove unwanted presents in, and then next Christmas they wheel them out and they send them to someone else, and they just recycle their presents round and round. Maybe you don't do that here, but um, it is done back our way. And so the presents are of absolutely no use to anyone, so they're just shoved in a cupboard. I won't tell you what presents I shove in the cupboard, but anyway, just in case you get one one day. So you've got all this stuff, Now, actually, you usually get useless presents from people who don't really know you. Apart from the randomers that just want to annoy you, but you get from people who don't know you. So they send you something and they think that you'll like that, but they don't know you, so it's not useful. It's not useful. You see, to love someone, you have, love can't be done at distance. Love has to be up close and personal because you have to get to know someone to actually effectively love them. And that means you need to get to know the person in order to love them in a useful manner. We could say more about that, but love is kind. Love is kind. But then he goes on, and by the way, love is kind because God is kind. You know, every one of these um, descriptive verbs you can see fulfilled in the character of God, every one of them. Why is that? Because God is love. So this is an exposition of the character of God. We won't do this in every word, but you can. God is kind. Listen to Titus 3 verse 4. After that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Is there anything more useful than a Savior? No. If you're a sinner, you need a Savior more than you need anything. And so God has been kind to us because He has provided what we require and is useful to us in our sin. 1 Timothy, 1 Peter 2, verse 3, if so be you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, that's the same word, kind. So as Christians, we taste that the Lord is kind. Matthew eleven thirty, my yoke is easy. It's the same word, kind. 
You see, the yoke of Christ is kind, it's useful. The service of Christ is fruitful, it's appropriate. He loves us and he demonstrates his kindness to us, even in the service of Christ. Love is patient, love is kind. Now, as I go through these words, please take them and apply them to what we've been talking about uh, the whole week. You know, to love God, to love your neighbor, to love your enemy, and to love one another. This is what it is. This is what it looks like. So, love does not envy, for he says here, charity suffereth long and is kind and envieth not. Now, I read this somewhere, and I liked it, and I actually didn't take a note of where I read it from. And what I read was this. Superficial jealousy says this, I want what you have. Okay, so let me illustrate for myself. So maybe I, you know, I put, obviously I don't because I don't live here, but maybe I pull up in the car park here. Okay, and I've got a kind of beat up old, I don't know what you drive here, no car. And then I see this absolute belter of a BMW or a, a Mercedes or something. And um, I think, you know what? I could do with that. That would enhance my lifestyle no end. And something is triggered within me. And it's jealousy. And so I walk in here and, uh, you know, I'm just going to choose someone, anyone. It's your car. And because of that jealousy that's been stirred in me, my relationship with you has been altered because I want what you possess. And it's changing the dynamic of our relationship. It's called jealousy. Now, take it away from a material possession like a car. That's just a very easy thing to look at. And then take it to things like now, here's where it really becomes harsh. Children. Maybe you have them, and others don't. Take it to issues like life experience, health. Just let your mind run with that. And think about jealousy in the context of all of these things spiritual gifts, friendships, etc. That's superficial jealousy. That's not envy. Envy goes deeper. So superficial jealousy says, I want what you have. Envy says, I want what you have, but I don't want you to have it. So I want it, but I don't want you to have it as well as me. It's an insidious, destructive thing. The root Greek word means to boil, to seethe. So just use the car analogy. So you, you, okay, so you see someone's car and there's something stirs within you. Maybe this is a guy thing, I don't know. There's something stirs within you and... Uh, you want that car, he's got that car, now your relationship's altered because every time you see him and the car, something stirs within you and there's something there. And you wouldn't admit it to yourself, but it's, it's deep down in there. 
So the next thing is just this. That you save and save and save, and you get the car, and you're absolutely raging that he still got it. It's like primal. But you can roll that out into success, failure, life experience, health, relationship, you name it. Love does not do that. Love does not envy. Love does not seethe over someone else's success. Love does not covet, as he was speaking about in this context, other people's spiritual gifts. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 3, he says this, ye are yet carnal, for there is among you, here it is, envying. Then he says, and it's the, it's the progression, envying strife, divisions. I would suggest to you this. In my limited observation of division amongst God's people, the root cause is often envy. Right back, deep down, buried away down in there, somewhere, envy. And it leads to strife. And then it leads to division. That's what happened in Corinth. It's not new. It's not peculiar to us. Actually, Paul was saying, this is going on in your assembly. You need to know what it is. In fact, it's been going on since the beginning of time. It actually goes right back to the Garden of Eden when Eve wanted to be like God. When Satan wanted to be like God. Cain was jealous of Abel. Joseph's brothers were jealous of him. James says this, listen, in chapter 3, verse 14, if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not. This is not an attractive thing. It's not a fruitful thing. It's not a spiritual thing. It's a destructive, carnal thing. And it's not love. You don't love someone and then envy the two are not able to sit together. One man wrote this. There's no better way to test a man than this. Let someone beneath him in his estimate or someone on the same level as him begin to succeed beyond him and see how he handles it. What a test. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love does not boast. I absolutely can't stand listening to boasting. Just can't stand it. I've always got this deep urge to stick a pin in the big balloon. And just, I don't know, it's not, it's sinful, I know, but I always get this thing because it's actually a big biblical concept because this word boast means a windbag. It does mean a balloon, which in Scotland's a very abusive term. If you call someone a balloon, you're not being nice to them. And so it's actually from the Bible. So the question of being a boastful person means this, that you are kind of full of hot air, so to speak. It's a very unattractive quality. It's actually used only here in this verse in the entire New Testament. Now, what is behind boasting is this, and it's a subtle thing. 
It is to try and make people want what you have and, as a consequence, feel inferior to you. Boasting. Okay, let's go back to the Mercedes. I'm sorry if you do own a Mercedes and you've driven up here. There's literally nothing to do with you, honestly. They can call it something else. But. So, so someone drives up in a car, okay, and, and, you know, there is absolutely nothing wrong with owning a car or whatever make. That's, that's completely not the issue. That's to miss the point. So don't get taken up when it makes of cars and whatnot. That's not the point. The point is that someone maybe achieves something, move away from the car or owns something or, or whatever, uh, and they, 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 they engage you in conversation. And they begin it, well, this is how it began in Scotland. Um, how are you doing? Now, that's not a question. That's a greeting because you don't want to know, actually. So you just say, how are you doing? And the standard response is fine. This is Scotland. We don't like to. So how are you doing? Fine. Next question, how are you? Answer, fine. And you both go into the day. Everybody's happy. Okay? You're probably not fine, but nobody cares. That's the truth in relationship in Scotland. So off we go into the day. So then you get a different scenario, and the different scenario is um, you engage in someone in conversation. How are you doing? Yeah, fine. You see my new car? You're like, yeah, it's nice. Blah, blah, blah. Ten-minute appreciation of the new car. Genuine. Like, it's a nice car. Blah, blah, blah. Mm. Okay, so the car talk goes on for an hour and a half. This time you've lost the will to live. <laughs> and so on. But the truth of the matter is that that type of behavior, which is, you know, I'm sort of anecdotally giving a kind of humorous example of it, is extremely destructive, destructive and destructive. Because what you're saying to that individual actually is this, I really want you to want what I have. And so I'm going to boast. I'm going to talk below and I'm going to get bigger in this conversation, and you're going to get smaller. And that's what happens when boasting takes place. That's the dynamic. Self puffing up and the diminution of the other individual. You don't do that to someone you love. You don't boast. It makes people feel inferior. Your child may do well at university or college or whatever, get good grades, have a heart for the family that that hasn't been the case. You know, have a heart if you post it on Facebook and, and you're gen genuinely pleased and rejoicing. Your but just have a heart for those other families that, that haven't that experience and are made to feel pretty inferior for not having that experience. This, we need to be careful about our boasting. And then he says this, not only charity suffereth long and is kind and envieth not, it vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Now, that's an expression that's been used about this Corinthian assembly and in the most unusual context. So this is deep-rooted conceit. And Paul says, listen, I want to tell you something that I know about your assembly. There is someone in your assembly who is living and committing serious immorality. 1 Corinthians 5. You aren't dealing with it as an assembly. In fact, you're tolerating it. No, you're not tolerating it. 
You are puffed up, he says. You're puffed up. This is actually the fact that you somehow can tolerate and manage this and be big enough to cope with it is causing you to be puffed up. He says you shouldn't be puffed up. You should be absolutely ashamed of the situation and deal with it as it should be dealt with. There was an inner arrogance about this assembly. And out of the arrogant heart came the hot air and meant that they were tolerating sin that should have been put away for the sinner as for those who were sinned against and for the testament and all the rest of it. There was instruction required for the appropriate handling of the situation, but the Corinthians were making it worse, not better. Puffed up. So we go on. Doth not behave itself unseemly. I love that old language. I am 50, so I do like old language. But I love that. Doth not behave itself unseemly. We might just, if we've been a bit kind of, you know, sharper, simply say this, love is not rude. Love is not rude. So, love is not characterized by poor manners. Now, my family know I have been bred with like an intolerant attitude to bad table manners. I hate bad table manners, but that's a personal thing. But um, I also was taught by my father about the importance of good manners generally. Christians should have good manners. Is this too basic? Is it the case when you're in a restaurant, you don't have the good manners to say please and thank you? to people who serve you? Do you never look the person who serves you in the eye when they're speaking to you and you talk to them as if they are less than you because they have a different job than you have and they're serving you? Love is not characterized by, my batteries, I think are just running out. Love is not characterized by rudeness. So what is rudeness then? I think rudeness is this. I will do what I want to do whether you like it or not. So I'm going to speak at a certain level in a public place. That's just a metaphor. My battery's just about run out as well. Right, I think we're good to go, yeah. So love is not rude. So what is rudeness? I mean, imagine having to speak about this in our day and generation, in our interaction with each other, that we're not rude to each other. The way we speak, the way we interact. In order not to be rude, you need to be aware of people round about you. I call it spatial awareness. You need to act in such a way that you take them into account. Because rudeness does not take anyone into account. This is particularly true, by the way, when you have kids. I've got kids, and I've soon got grand my grandchildren will never do anything wrong, I'm just telling you. <laughs> so uh, that's just the way it's going to be. But um, my kids certainly did lots of things wrong, and continue to. Um, so when you think about your kids, we see this all the time. And this is where Christianity is being actually lived out in issues like this. 
So, for example, you, you know, you're in a restaurant and someone's kids are at your table taking food off your plate. And you think, you know, this is somewhat inappropriate. Um, this is not my child. And what is this child doing in my space? But obviously, it's very difficult to respond in a Christ-like way when you want to just do other things. What is the parent thinking about? Because the parent is not aware of you. You're not important to that parent. The child is all important, so therefore the child will be allowed to just wander about, create havoc, and annoy people. That's unacceptable. It's unacceptable when the saints gather, as parents, that we do that. It's unacceptable because it's rude. It's rude. And it's a very basic point. It's not anticipating the people round about you or taking them into account as being important. Our children are all important. So when you think about that, then not just in children. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the assembly are condemned for being rude because they came together to have meals. Those who had a lot to eat sat in one corner and those who had very little to eat sat in another corner and they didn't share. It's rude. It's not taking into account the people apart from yourself. You're okay, so I'm not giving a thought to them. That's rude. It is not loving them. Barclay, in his commentary, translate the phrase in this way, love does not behave gracelessly. Love is not rude. Love is not selfish. Seeketh not her own. Lenski, in his commentary, says, cure selfishness and you've just replanted the Garden of Eden. The Corinthians were extremely selfish. They used their gifts for their own benefit and edification. The Lord Jesus was selfless in his love and he came to minister to others and not to be ministered to. You know, I'm going to leave the local assembly which I formed parks. I'm getting nothing out of it. That's selfish. The question is, what are you putting into it, not what are you getting out of it? What's your contribution? What's your involvement? What influence are you able to assert within your community for Christ, for good? Why are people not looking to you, for example, in leadership? Why do you always need to be led? Why won't you consider leading? Why will you always take? Why not give? Change the mindset. Don't be selfish. This is the key to the whole concept of love, I think. It's selflessness. When you think about Christ, it was so evident he was selfless. He put the needs of others before his own. So you're patient with people, you're kind with people, you're not jealous of people or envious, nor are you blazingly angry at people all the time or you get easily upset with people, but you're gracious and you're not rude. And all of that requires selflessness. So it doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not their own, is not easily provoked. Is not easily provoked. This comes from the idea of a sudden outburst. You know, the, the, the person who has the reputation of going from zero to 100 miles an hour in temper 
like that. And people dance round about them because they can go ballistic in an instant. Easily provoked. I want my way. I want it the way I want it. If you don't do it the way I want it, I am going to hurt you in some way. Either verbally, passively, whatever the way. I'm going to impose some hurt upon you because I can't get my own way. I am, pro- I am easily provoked. You know, the idea also within this is the idea of being easily irritated. Now, some people have got irritable bowel syndrome and other people have got irritable personality syndrome. And they are like sheets of sandpaper. But anytime you go up near them, you come away with kind of, it's like a, an unpleasant experience. You know, you're, you're, you're mentally exhausted by a five-minute conversation because you're dancing around all these minefields. And um, you've no idea what that, you know, you sometimes you have a conversation, you, you know, I don't know what that was. I don't know if that was a good or a bad conversation. It could go either way. And you have these things that go on. And you're the guy. You're the person. Because you're so easily irritated. Just written in your face, you're fuming and always irritated at folk. That's not love. You see, when you go down these words, and it does get a bit kind of wearisome just talking in detail in this. When you go down these words, you discover that a lot of it is known to us, actually. And we smile at it because, you know, you know people who, they just, you know, they're easily irritated. And you know people that go ballistic and come back down just as fast. And, and, and we accept all these things. And we say, it's just them. You know, it's just the way I was born. You ought to see my father and my mother. You know, I'm a dilated version. And, uh, it, you know, maybe in three generations we'll get somewhere to normal if we keep going. And you get these ideas of, of, of explaining away unacceptable things. But here's a serious point. The Lord Jesus said, love one another. But then he said this, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. If the things that I've mentioned, the things that you can read for yourself, they're so self-explanatory. I mean, rejoicing not in iniquity. That's your own iniquity and the iniquity of others. That is that you don't rejoice in your own sin and you don't rejoice when other people's sin gets found out. You know, you've got someone that's been annoying you for years and then they fall into sin and you're like, woof, they're done. You rejoice in their iniquity as well as your own. And so this is all bad stuff. You have to rejoice in the truth positively. You bear all things. You believe all things. That is that you are a positive person. That is that you look to the best in people. That is that you're not overridden by cynicism and all the rest of it. And you hope all things and you endure all things. And you know, when you think about love, I think about the love that you people have for your unsaved children and your unsaved siblings. And you love them. And you yearn for their salvation. Some of you have been praying for them for a lifetime. 
Why do you not stop? Because you love them. That's why. Because love is characterized by this. Love hopeth all things. Love is optimistic, not pessimistic. And there is an inbuilt optimism in love when you love an individual and you're yearning for their salvation and you're praying for them and your love will not allow you to give up. It's inherently optimistic. And it keeps you praying. And love endureth all things. It keeps you going. It keeps you going. I think about my own parents. My eldest brother's not a Christian. He's old, obviously older than me, and he's in his mid-50s, and he's not a believer. And he's the firstborn to my parents. And they haven't given up on him. And I know they will never give up on him. And they will pray, and they will endure the difficulties of that relationship sometime because they love him. They love him. And love sticks. Love doesn't run. Love doesn't give up. Love hopes. Love believes. Love endures. In fact, love never fails. Love never fails. Take the definition of love and then think about that person that you've been thinking about the whole time I've been speaking. The name's been coming in your head because you know you don't love them. They might actually be sitting in this room. And take that definition of love and it's too big a definition to implement in a one So narrow your focus down to one aspect of love. And why will you not determine that you will put that aspect of love into practice in that relationship? And you will love them. And by so doing, you will fulfill the command of Christ. This is the unusual, counterintuitive, countercultural concept, the revolutionary concept of love that is the love of Christ. The fact that love, that Christ loved us and gave himself for us. The fact that his love was not drawn out by merit within us, but by need within us. It was our very sinfulness and it was our very need and our inability and lack of strength that drew the love of Christ to us not any merit and acceptability of us. Let us love one another on that basis, not because there is something in us that draws the love out of us, but because of the very things in us that need the love to flow from us in order for us to love one another. It is the most distinctive Christian characteristic, according to the Lord Jesus. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. What do folk think about you in your community? 
if they know you? What do they think about you? What do they say about you? Do they know that you all fight and you don't like each other? Is that what they know? Do you talk to unbelievers about it? Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in Askel, unless the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Or are people struck that there's a disparate group of people who are socially incompatible, who perhaps even come from different language groups, and it's an absolute source of puzzlement to the community. How do these people get on? Why are these people in community with each other? What is it that holds them together? When in our society, these people would have virtually nothing to do with each other. Lives would never have crisscrossed. What is it? Why do they love each other? Let that be the question, not why do they can't stand each other. And so let me leave this little um, series with a challenge for us. Because, you know, a series of ministry, and I say this increasingly, a series of ministry is, um, it is a kind of pleasant thing um, to a certain extent, but it can be an unproductive thing unless you go away with something, a singular not a big thing, but a singular point to put into practice tomorrow. It has to be like that. So that's my challenge. You need to decide. Love God. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. Love one another. What's it going to be? Let's just pray. Our Father, we bow in thy presence and we thank thee again for the privilege of opening thy word. We thank thee, Father, for the love of Christ, a love which is staggering, and a love, Father, which intimidates us because it is so far out of reach in many ways. We think about it and the extent to which he would go and the passion and compassion of his heart. Father, we would look at him and we would we would aspire to love like he loves. Help us, our God, to take his command and put it into practice, we pray, in a very practical way. And so, Father, we thank thee for the fellowship of saints. We thank thee for the opportunity to open thy word and to allow the sword of the Spirit to make its cut uh, upon our flesh. And so, Father, we just ask for thy blessing upon the assemblies represented here, some from a distance, some close by. We pray, our God, that there may be the fruit that follows the sowing of thy seed into our hearts. We ask thy blessing in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.